Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Grzybowski and this is a Blind Entrepreneurship bonus episode brought to you by Penji, a podcast that helps entrepreneurs and business professionals execute their vision to profitability. This week's episode is all about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. This week's masterclass led by Sakina Brody, our director of partnerships, is another amazing conversation, a real conversation, an honest conversation that we need to have more of, and I'm going to continue highlighting it on this ep- uh, on this podcast as much as I can uh, until some, and I hope, some type of change, some type of dialogue is continued because it's needed, especially in the workforce. And this week's masterclass had three incredibly amazing experts, Dr. Lizette Ojeda, Dr. Laura McGuire, and Rebecca Baumgartner. During the masterclass, we discuss how companies can create safe spaces for their team members, how to handle microaggressions at work, and dealing with the pressure of being tokenized in your position. And again, just the real honest conversations that are had, and Sakina is doing an amazing, amazing job uh, at this. So enjoy today's masterclass. It's going to be around 50 minutes or so. Put it in the background, listen to it on the way to work, enjoy it, and I hope that you're able to share this podcast episode with a friend. Go out there and execute your vision. Everybody have a great rest of your day and enjoy the episode. Our topic for today is diversity, inclusion, and belonging, more than just a trend. My name is Sakina. I'm the Director of Partnerships here at Penji, and I will also be the moderator of today's panel. So I have three incredible experts joining me this morning. I have Rebecca Baumgartner, Dr. Laura McGuire, and also Dr. Lizette. So at this time, I will allow them all to introduce themselves and tell you guys a little bit about what they do, and then we'll get into this incredible discussion. So uh, Rebecca, you want to start? Sure. Um, my name is Rebecca Baumgartner. I am currently the Diversity and Inclusion Manager for Ogletree Deacons, Nash, Smoke, and Stewart, uh, which is a labor and employment law firm located both in the United States, uh, in Canada, Mexico, and across the country in Europe. And I really oversee all of our diversity and inclusion efforts uh, for our attorneys, for the most part, uh, focusing on people of color, LGBTQ, uh, as well as um, our women and our other minority and diverse attorneys, veteran and disabled. Uh, so some of the things that I really focus on is emotional intelligence and how it can help you not only identify the bias within yourself, but also how to mitigate it and really giving you tools to do that, as well as understanding the definite complexities of intersectionalities in today's social world. Wow, awesome. Dr. Lizette, you want to introduce yourself? Hi there. Um, My name is Dr. Lizette, and I do a couple of things, all things related to empowering people to step up into their full potential as their true authentic selves without sacrificing their sanity or their identity. Um, And I do this as a professor. Um, I've been a professor for 10 years, um, training doctoral students to learn how to help other people really navigate um, cultural issues, gender issues, biases, and be more um, culturally aware helpers. And then I'm also doing research on these topics. So really understanding how gender issues, um, cultural stressors influence success in both the academic and work settings and how that in turn affects mental health. And then I also apply this in the community. So teaching it, researching and applying it with uh, companies, corporations and organizations and schools. Awesome. Dr. Laura McGuire. Hello everybody, I'm Dr. Laura McGuire and I am the founder of the National Center for Equity and Agency. Um, I run a consulting firm and I previously worked in K-12 and higher ed and the government doing both sexual misconduct prevention work and diversity and inclusion. Um, My scholarship really focuses on the intersections of those two issues where a lot of people see them as you know these kind of separate siloed problems. There's a lot of intersection there. So I go around the country helping um, schools and businesses and government entities to understand how to holistically address them and feel the structural inequalities that cause them so that they can move forward in being part of the change instead of the problem. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you all for joining us and for, you know, being willing to share your expertise. Um, I want to get started with, I know you all work in the inclusion space, um, whether it's in the workplace or if it's in um, a school or university or an organization. Uh, what are some ways that we can create safe spaces that are inclusive of all people so that we can have the necessary conversations about what makes us all uh, authentic and unique? How do we create those safe spaces specifically in the workplace? Uh, Rebecca, you wanna start? Um, sure, so I think a lot of it, you know, as, as some of the other panelists have already said, is about becoming aware and being culturally aware. And, you know, I think a big piece of it too is, you know, we've all been taught, you know, the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, but that really doesn't work in today's uh, space, whether it's at work or in the community. People are different. There are so many different things that people need. They have either visible differences or invisible differences. So we really need to be able to talk and listen to those and create a space where they can say, this is what I need. And then we can treat them the way that they want to be treated instead of kind of uh, projecting our own preferences on them. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lizette. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Totally fine. And so whether that is, um, you know, creating places for people to have, you know, we currently here in this office, we have a separate room for, you know, just meditation for them, people to just kind of go and, and, and decompress and, and think to themselves. And we also will, you know, kind of sometimes look at, okay, how in our space can we create something that's a little bit more gender neutral for everybody? Mm. Definitely. Dr. Lizette, did you want to add to that? Yeah, so I think the first thing that we need to think about is that we all have assumptions and biases. It's just the nature of being a human. Um, even someone like me, I always have to check myself and ask myself, you know, am I allowing biases to come into the play, come into play here? And that the difference, though, is that I am aware. And so there needs to be this level of awareness. Instead of taking this colorblind approach, everybody's the same, I treat everybody equally. It's not about equality, it's about equity. And so what somebody needs might not be what somebody else needs. And so being aware that there are differences, instead of trying to treat everybody the same, honor the differences and recognize that you have some assumptions. And that's okay, it's part of humanity, but it's what you do with those assumptions and what you allow that to, um, how you allow that to take place and how you allow that to manifest. So being aware of it and asking yourself and challenging yourself to, you know, think differently and act differently in a way that doesn't perpetuate these biases that are within us, but allows us to ask ourselves, okay, gosh, where did this come from? And how can I do something differently in a way that doesn't perpetuate this? And instead of just taking that, everybody's the same approach, I really encourage people to honor everybody's differences and that with these differences come different ways of thinking and that you already have a set of assumptions of how things should be and how people should be doing things. Even just thinking about cultural differences when it comes to collectivism and individualism. You know, people who come from more collectivistic cultures are not going to take the same mentality in corporate American workforce settings of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go and promote yourself. Um, people who come from more collectivistic cultures are, are probably going to be more humble and less likely to toot their own horn and just be more likely to allow their work to speak for itself instead of promoting themselves. And that's not because they don't have leadership potential. It's probably more due to cultural issues um, and not to generalize it, but it's something that you need to be aware of and also ask yourself, is this something that's coming into play or is it something else more psychological like confidence or lack of um, uh, assertiveness skills, right? It's really difficult to pull that apart because assertiveness looks different in different cultures. And so again, just making sure that you don't assume that everybody's the same and then also take a colorblind approach and being aware of your own assumptions and biases and how that shows up. Awesome. Dr. Laura, did you wanna to add to that? Yeah, definitely. I, I love everything that everyone said. And I feel like we all need to have uh, tea soon because all of our work <laughs> crosses over. Um, but, you know, I, I love um, what the first speaker said, you know, about like the platinum rule, right? Like moving away from the golden rule to the platinum rule, thinking about what other people are going through and having empathy to that. And also, 
understand that you can't completely understand anyone else's experience, right? And keeping that humility. I think when you're talking about in the question, creating safe spaces, it's about a lot of times, um, you know, moving away from these concepts of, uh, you know, well, we want everyone to be comfortable. The reality is even, even like what I do with sexual violence prevention work, you know, we can't, we can't prevent all triggers. We can't make everyone feel safe all the time, but what we can do is help people to feel um, engaged and safe in being a little bit uneasy and uncomfortable because these are tough conversations and these are new conversations in our modern Western world, right? This is, this is something that has so many layers and is so intersectional and complex. And I think sometimes in our field, there's, there's a little bit of a, a habit where we want to wrap things up with a pretty bow and make them memes and make them these like easy little sound bites that sound really cool and great. It's like, oh, it's that easy, you know, we'll solve it in a day. Um, I think the work, number one, begins with yourself, right? Um, and, and doing that internal work and realizing your internal biases too, that, you know, even if we are minorities in any sense, women, people of color, queer people, um, we, we have, even internalize the biases against our own communities, right? And then moving away from cultural competency to cultural humility. And that is, you know, we're never going to completely understand anyone's experience. There's not gonna be a workshop that summarizes what it's like to be someone who's undocumented or someone with an invisible disability. But with humility, we can say, let me try to learn the skills, like we're talking about with emotional intelligence, right? To, to understand where other people are coming from, to be compassionate towards it. And I think that is that is the work that we're going towards. Those are the spaces mm. we're trying to create. Definitely. You, you kind of touched on how uh, trendy diversity, the word itself has become, um, especially on social media. What are, I know you all work with companies in different ways. What are some ways that they can approach inclusion in a way that doesn't seem as if they're trying too hard? Because a lot of times it comes across as if it's not genuine or if they're just trying to check off boxes. What are some ways that companies can approach it in a way that doesn't seem like they're trying too hard? Oh, Rebecca, you want to start? Yeah, and um, you know that that really kind of hits a sore spot with me in the legal field because it really is a, a lot of law firms are, are really being forced to check box. Mm -hmm. um, we always we in the diversity and inclusion field in the legal industry we get surveyed to death um, from the you know overall certifying body of lawyers, the American Bar Association. We have to fill out a survey for them every year. Then all of our clients will send us a survey, and it's really not always about you know. What are you actually doing and what are the impacts of these initiatives that you're, you're putting forth to advance minorities and diverse attorneys and people? It's more about how much diversity do you have? What is your percentage of people of color? What is your percentage of LGBT in these different levels of the firm, whether that is an entry-level associate to an equity partner or somebody who's actually on the executive board? And so it does become very disillusioning when you are working in this field and you're just literally like on the paper, checking a box all the time. Um, but I think that one of the things that Ogletree does really, really well and what I think other companies um, like us do really well is we, as you kind of said, we don't advertise it as much. And I think one of the other speakers said, you know, we're, um, we're not here just to toot our own horn. We really do believe in this and we do a lot of internal things that don't necessarily get publicized. And I think that those numbers um, as far as the impact that it has on our attorneys really kind of speaks to itself. So I think one of the things that companies really should do is, is look internally, like what, what are your values? Is diversity a part of your value? Is inclusion and belonging and equity a part of your value system? And is it incorporated in anything, whether it's policies? But then again, you know, just because you have great policies against discrimination and bias doesn't mean that the culture is like that. So I really think it comes from a top-down approach of, are people living by the values? Is diversity a value? And how are you showing that every single day when you come into the office? Mm, great answer. Dr. Lizette, you want to add to that? So what comes to mind is, um, so I do research on this stuff. And when I read articles to stay on top of this topic, I always see the diversity inclusion 
a small paragraph at the end. It's kind of like an afterthought. And so I don't want companies and corporations to think of this as an afterthought, like something that just has to be taken care of. It should be something that should be integrated into everything, not just, okay, let's make sure we tick that box. And so some of the ways to be able to do that is to really understand what are these core values of not just the company, but the people. And so figuring out a way how to not make the people feel like their values are being undervalued, but how can we work together instead of competing with each other and feeling like we can't show up as our full authentic selves because we have to wear this corporate mask that is the mainstream way of of working. And it just doesn't work, especially when you think about intersectionality. Think about not just people of color, but think about gender, think about sexual orientation, think about ability status, think about religion, like all those things. Imagine what it's like for someone to have to navigate all those different identities in a place that is supposed to be, you know, uh, you know, maybe good old boys network, right? And so I really encourage people to not think of it as just an afterthought, as just something that needs to be checked off. And, you know, um, that energy is felt. People can tell that it's just not something that is authentically, genuinely of value. And it's people don't want to feel that way, that you're just an afterthought, like, oh, let's just make Susie Q and who knows who happy and satisfied so they don't go complain to HR. No, actually make them feel like they matter because it's going to be a win-win-win win for them because they're going to feel like they can be themselves you're going to have less to- turnover it's going to be a win for you because you're going to get your employees to do better work and it's going to be win a win-win for your um the customers and clients because they're going to actually be feel like they're part of the organization not just in the organization but making making a part of it Mm. Yeah. Dr. Dr. Laura, did you want to add? Yeah, definitely. I think um, in particular when, when businesses, but even schools come and they, they say they want some support, they want the, what I call the one and done model, right? Mm. Oh, we'll do a training. Oh, we'll have a speaker. We did mm. it. <laughs> and they like pat themselves on the back. We're accomplished. We're diverse now. Um, and, and I really try to get them to understand that this is a long-term process um, and that they, it's best to invest in long-term support, right? If you can hire a speaker who also does consulting, who will help you look over your policies, look over your practices, um, and that these have to be on in the organization. This can't just be, you know, that again, that one month, that one awareness event. This has to be something that's brought up over and over again. Um, and then, you know, like a lot of other speakers touched on the, the concept of tokenism, right? Oh, well, we'll hire more diverse candidates because it looks good. Um, we are essentially tolerating them. We're not celebrating the diverse strengths that they're bringing, um, you know, and we're, again, just doing it to check a box. We're not really going out and saying, what are the strengths that we need to bring into this organization and how do we celebrate that? Um, and then I think the next piece great authentic feedback. If your employees are saying, we don't feel like this is a space that celebrates diversity, again, being uncomfortable and saying, oh, you know, we thought we were doing a good job but we're glad to know that there's something that's still missing the mark and now we can create a strategic plan for how to improve that um, and i think that's one of the things that a lot of organizations really struggle with definitely how do you all counteract comments from uh, leadership with the companies that you work with such as um, we just hire or promote the best person for the job regardless of race or gender how do you counteract those uh, objections from from uh, leadership Dr. Lara, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Well, you know, I think it's it's a lot of times, again, starts starts on an individual level, starts on the micro. Um, so helping them understand if that's a statement they're making in leadership, that uh, they're usually going to connect to people that are like them. We all do that. That's a, a very primitive behavior. You know, it's part of our survival instinct. We look for people, okay, they, they look like me, they think like me, it's safe. Um, and so that is something they have to recognize. It's an unconscious bias they have. So they might think, 
well, this person's most qualified, but if they were a little possibly more aware of their own biases, they'd say, wow, you know, I'm thinking that because I relate to them because they remind me of me um, versus really looking at things holistically. And that then takes, you know, a team effort, right? Of all different people and all different levels of the organization to say, how can we improve this? How can we find the people who, you know, really want these positions, deserve them, and also people who um, haven't been given the opportunities to, to shine, their strengths haven't been exhibited um, because that's, that's the other issue, right? A lot of people get the mic over and over again. It looks like they're the most qualified because we're always shining the spotlight on them, but there's plenty of other people who are being silenced or ignored who are, are just as talented. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lizette. I think, you know, you hit the, the, the nail in the coffin, like it's really about opportunity. It's not about what they're capable of doing, but rather who has been given most of the opportunities, mm -hmm. right? Like just, if you just look at leadership, what does it look like mostly? Is it because they have some kind of gene, some special secret gene no it's because certain people get more opportunities and until other people start to get those opportunities that will continue to be the dominant picture as you go higher and higher in leadership it's not because that they're less capable it's because there's been less opportunity or maybe um, they're trying to work in a setting that values the values of the people who are already at the top. And so they feel like, well, does this mean that I'm going to have to sacrifice who I am? Does it mean that I'm not going to be accepted? And so maybe they decide, I don't want to be in that environment. Do I have to choose between being myself and, and honoring who I am and being okay with my cultural background and who I am and how I identify, or am I going to have to navigate this environment every day battling with, do I be my true self or do I be the person that they want me to be? And mm. so really, I think it's about opportunity and, and embracing diversity and allowing them to say, you know what, you're really good at this. Here are some opportunities where you can take the lead and run with it. You know, these are the key factors that I want you to be careful with and attend to, but Put your own twist to it and then you're going to be able to see that they're able to shine and they're not going to be like stressed out am i doing it right or um is it okay if i talk like this or dress like this or or be like this like can you imagine how stressful that is and so who wants to be living that every day and so i think it's both opportunity and then just the stress level right like nobody wants to be having that kind of stress and so maybe it's a decision that people make consciously like even if I went for that opportunity what are the chances that the opportunity would lead anywhere and if I got there what would it how stressful would it be mm. how much how much would I have to represent mm -hmm. my background because I made it mm -hmm. right it, it could be a very stressful you know so I think there are a lot of factors there. It's not just who's more, most qualified, but why are they the most qualified opportunities? And then these other things that I just mentioned about who they have to become to be able to be there. Definitely. That's a great answer. Rebecca, did you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, a lot of times, you know, we buy into the concept of meritocracy because it really supports what has shaped America, right? That can do Somebody mentioned pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing that, you know, you work hard, you're, you're going to get places. But in reality, that unconscious bias, the structural bias based on people's social classes, immigration status, gender, ethnicity, and all these other factors that kind of makes them who they are really kind of make that impossible, they're, that there cannot really be a fair system. One of the speakers who's also a consultant that we have worked with here uh, did a research study, and there are a lot of studies that kind of prove this point that meritocracy doesn't actually have merit. Um, so there was a study with five partners of five different law firms, and they developed a memo with deliberate errors, right? They sent it to 60 different law firms. 30 of them were men, 30 were women. And they told these partners that the purpose was to be able to look at the writing ability of these young associates. Now, they were written by partners, but they told them they were young, early associates. Some identified as white, some identified as black. And overall, the rating was 
um, lower for African-American associates and it was higher for white associates. Spelling errors were, you know, much higher for African-American associates and they were much lower for white associates and they were the exact same memo. So it really just kind of shows that even just without seeing it, they, they read a name and they can either attribute some kind of uh, factor, some kind of identifier to it, and that automatically colors everything that they read without them even knowing it. So I think that meritocracy is, is important, it's good, but it's not the be-all, end-all because unconscious bias exists and people are not able to identify it when it happens and are not equipped to, to interrupt it. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Laura and Dr. Lizette, you both kind of touched on feeling tokenized early, earlier um, in the work environment. If someone does feel like that, what are some ways that you, you think that they can adjust better to their new position or dealing with the stress and the, whatever they feel the obligations are that comes along with that role? Uh, Dr. Laura, you want to start? Sure. Oh, that's such a good question, right? Because I think so often we are putting this on the individuals, right? And they feel that they think, you know, if I'm having a hard time with this, it's for me to work out. Um, and even they might, you know, confide in a colleague or a supervisor, this is really stressful. I feel like, you know, do I fit in here? You know, was I just selected for my identity? And the person will say, oh, you know, you're imagining that, right? <laughs> um, gaslighting their experience. And so I think one, my, my number one tip, honestly, would be to embrace whatever opportunity you're given. Um, find avenues for calling out things um, as best you can when you see inconsistencies. Uh, even, you know, among other people, you say, you know, that person, they actually had the idea first in the meeting and then somebody else repeated it and everyone paid attention to when they said it, right? Um, and, and then to not take on the emotional labor, though, of fixing the organization or fixing the situation, right? Which, again, someone was talking put so much emotional labor on minorities, um, on marginalized people, um, to be the voice, to be the example. You know, I, I've been in meetings where they have said, you know, straight up just, um, you know, well, if, if people of that group think this is unfair, I, I you know, I just went around ask everybody I knew who I had that identity, do you think this is a fair practice? And, you know, it's, it's shocking that there's just a complete lack of awareness on how unfair and even bizarre and cruel that can be, right? So um, I think for the individual, don't, don't make this something that you have to fix or your emotional labor. Try to, to again, make the changes that you can, enjoy the benefits that um, you're, you're being granted and then make things better for the next person coming after you. Hmm. But it is, it's hard, right? Because that's, it's almost an impossible balance. Well, try to work to make things better, and yet don't take on emotional labor that you don't, uh, you don't need to. Yeah, Dr. Liza, can you add to that? Because you you spoke about being having to represent a lot um, earlier. So, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure for someone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's a matter of making conscious decisions about what you allow yourself to experience, and then how you allow yourself to interpret it and internalize it or not. Um, and so I think a lot of times you have to decide, get really clear on what are your non-negotiables? Like, you know, I'm, I'm okay with allowing this to pass, but definitely not this. And if this happens, this is what I'm, I'm going to do in that situation. And so it's being really clear on what that looks like for you because everybody's different. You can't just lump everybody of the same group and assume that they all value the same thing and they all handle things the same way. There are so many different factors that come into play. Um, you know, like for example, Latinos, we, we uh, immigrants, U.S. born, uh, parents of immigrants, people who have been here before, um, you know, parts of the U.S. took over Mexico. Um, you know, everybody has a different experiences. You can't lump everybody together. Um, so you got to be really clear on what that looks like for you, because people will try to make you be the representative of 
a whole entire group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to know how to deal with those things when it does come up and know where you draw the line and where you're just going to be like, that's, that's who he is. That's how they are. Um, I'm not going to allow it to affect me, but don't try to lie to yourself. If it really is affecting you, then do something about it. But you also have to be aware of if I do something about it, what does this mean? And is this how I want to handle it? But not in a way that makes you feel silenced or threatened that you have to sacrifice yourself and your dignity, but in a way that you're just aware, like, this is what I'm dealing with here. I can decide to deal with it this way or not to deal with it, or I can decide to handle it this way, or I can decide to um, let it affect me this way because it's just so complex and it's really difficult for me to just explain it all (laughs) now. But the thing is you've got society, you've got the company, you've got the people, you've got yourself and having to navigate all of it all at the same time is really taxing and tiring and exhausting and it hinders your sense of self and productivity and all kinds of things. And so I think it just really starts on being clear on who you are, how you want to show up in the world. What are your must haves? What are your um, nice to haves? And what are your like that? That's uh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then how do you want to deal with it? And being clear on like, what's going to be okay for you? What's not going to be okay with for you and having that support system where you can go talk to people who really understand you and support you so that there is an outlet and you don't feel like you're going through this alone. Mm-hmm. Rebecca, you want to add to that? That was a really great point. No, it, it was. And I think that, you know, another issue that comes along with tokenism is the feeling of isolation that, that people have when they're the only ones like them. You know, if they're the only ones in their office or they're, they're only ones at the table that look like them, there is, you know, as, as Dr. McGuire said, there is a lot of emotional labor that, that comes with it. And unfortunately, some people don't want to deal with that, and so they resort to covering. They see what other people are doing, and instead of being themselves and instead of embracing their individualism and their authenticity, they, they reject it, and they start taking on those traits and behaviors of others because there's nobody like them. And, that, and that's very taxing. And unfortunately, people burn out very quickly when, when they don't feel welcomed or belonged um, because uh, they, they're, they're a token. And I think that also speaks a lot to the company and the organization that they're at if they do have that feeling. And I, and I think that that's definitely something that needs to be addressed in the organization. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges that you all have faced in your work to push forward the conversation of, of inclusion and equity, like we said earlier? What are some of those challenges you face? Rebecca, you want to start? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking back to, um, again, Dr. McGuire, when she was saying, I know diversity. I took a training. <sighs> Literally, I had a conversation with one of our equity partners two weeks ago who said that. Mm-hmm. We were you know, talking about you know, having some conversations with some of his attorneys who were having problems. And I, you know, had kind of brought up the the subject of, you know, DNI, and he goes, "Well, I took that training last year. I know diversity. I'm good with that." I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is exactly the problem." Um, so I really do think that that's it. I think it's getting the majority people on board and bought in. You know, getting those true engaged allies to say, "Yes, I I'm, I am bought in, and I am going to help support this, and I am going to live this every day and make things better." Um, but you do, you come across a lot of those, uh, and I'm going to say, uh, you know, white older men who just don't believe it, or they believe that they've done, you know, one or two things and that should make everything better. And they don't understand why this is a big deal anymore. Um, so I really think that that is the, one of the biggest issues that I personally have, have seen both here and in other organizations. Definitely. Dr. Lizette. So I'm reminded of, um, a training that I did. Um, on cultural competence with Latino, um, with their Latino population. And the person who was organizing it asked me if I was going to come dressed in, in ethnic attire. And I'm, I'm like, I I know I'm like this whole understanding of what culture is. It's not for display. It's not something that you find at the museum. It's actual values and ways of being and, and thoughts. And it's not, I mean, it's that alone, it, it's very difficult to tackle that with one training. That's years, right. years of, of biases accumulating. 
And it shows up in different ways. And you can't just be like one and done training that's going to address all of this because these things are going to pop up in different ways, in different settings, with different people, with different personalities. You can't know how to handle all that and how to address it and how to embrace everyone, uh, everyone's differences with just one training that tells you about someone's history or like, even with that, like I have an issue with assuming that, okay, this is how you treat this group and this is how you treat that group and these are the issues for this group intersectionality makes it all more even com more complex um and so it's just something that's never done and then minimizing it to cultural factors um uh, of display is just like food and music and, and attire like it's more than that mm -hmm. <laughs> right yeah Dr. Laura, you want to add to that? Sometimes. Yeah, I think um, there's two kind of major factors that I've seen in my career where people just, you know, are really hesitant or, or react very negatively to these conversations. Um, you know, and one is, is facing past mistakes, right? Well, I'll get a lot of, well, this used to be okay. Or I used that term when it was fine. So why what changed? Everything is uh, cool for her forever. Um, and so it's helping them understand that just because something wasn't, again, called out or focused on um, as, as problematic um, doesn't mean that it was actually okay. Even if society was saying, ah, you know, no big deal, doesn't mean it was actually right. Mm -hmm. And I to look back and say, you know, I know better now, I'll do better now. Um, and I think a lot of people have fear around that, you know? Um, and then I think the second piece of that is understanding their intent versus their impact, right? That they didn't mean to, in most cases, do things or say things that were harmful. Um, I'm sure that that person who um, was somehow convinced that uh, Hispanic people wore different clothes, uh, you know, their intent was, Look how aware and inclusive I am, probably. <laughs> uh, even though we're laughing at them because we know better, right? We understand how negative that impact is. Um, one example that I have is when I was working at a military academy, it was definitely a good old boys club. And I was the only um, queer person who was out there. And there was a part of the campus called Baggett Beach. And mm. that was the term they used throughout the academy. Uh -huh. Yep, this was uh, like a year and a half ago. So not, not 10 years ago even. Um, and one of the leading commanders was arguing with me in a meeting about how it wasn't a big deal, how that wasn't a negative term. Mm. And you know, I had to try to call him in and also just bring awareness of why that's a negative term? What is the sociocultural context of that? What's the etymology of that term? Um, and then how would that impact people, right? Because he was saying his intent was homophobic. And so trying to bring him into the conversation on, well, here's the impact that saying things like that have on the school, your community and your students and staff. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I think, but there's that protective factor, right? Like, I don't want to think I did anything wrong, so I'm going to keep trying to justify it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, Dr. Lizette and Rebecca, I want to hear from both of you. Um, how do you deal with microaggressions in, in the workplace? Oh, um, you know, I, I, in talking about kind of like intersectionality, I am a a working mother who works at a very, you know, busy and uh, demanding law firm who is not a lawyer. Um, and I work with lawyers every day. And so, you know, while it's not necessarily on the scale of, you know, something a person of color would experience or something um, an LGBTQIA person would experience, um, but, but it does happen, you know, whether it's because I'm female and I, I kind of get that, that side eye look um, when, I, when I walk into a room or I kind of get uh, pish poshed in a meeting um, or even because I don't have what they feel is the right pedigree to tell them what to do. Um, so I, I do, I get that. And 
the only thing I can really do is I can just stay grounded in myself, um, understand I, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm talking about, and I am trying to help and support these people even if they're not ready to hear it, um, even if they're not quite ready to, to accept me at face value. If I continue and I, I kind of show them the real impact and value that I have, I will jump that border, and it's hard, and it's disheartening a lot. You know, you, you kind of get that, oh, hey, you know, I'm at, a, I'm at a, an event or a conference. I'm like, oh, I work at Ogletree Deacons, and they're like, oh, yeah, so, you know, what area do you practice in? I'm like, oh, I'm not a lawyer. Oh. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they kind of start veering off to go talk to somebody else. And so it is. It really is, and it's, um, and it, and it's difficult to continually have to prove yourself mm-hmm. uh, because you don't share certain aspects or you don't have a JD, even though I have a master's and a doctorate, it doesn't mean that I am not, I'm not qualified to speak in my own area. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. Dr. Lizette, what about you? So for the longest time, um, people thought that I was not the person in charge. And, uh, you know, I've, I got my PhD uh, 10 years ago. And so back then I looked relatively younger. <laughs> um, and so people would assume that I was, you know, just staff or I was a student or, I, and it was really taxing to try to understand, is it because I look young? Is it because I'm a woman or is it because I'm Latina? And is it just me taking it too personally? And so it's this constant stressor of wondering and being hypervigilant about what does this even mean? And sometimes the microaggressions, the implicit biases are more stressful to manage than the outward um, straight up, mm-hmm. you know, comments, because at least you know where they stand. Yep. This area is great and it's confusing and it takes a lot of mental um power that could be put to better use doing your work. Um, Okay, so let's talk about why people, (laughs) um, the the most qualified, right? Well, hello, you have to deal with all this stuff. And so it's, it, it can be really difficult, these microaggressions that seem harmless. But when you compile them on a day to day basis, Mm -hmm. it's really stressful, Mm -hmm. more stressful than just these one time offenses because it's it's just constant stress that builds up and affects you i mean increases hypertension increases calling in sick burnout all that stuff mm-hmm. on top of just the day-to-day work stressors and life stressors so um yeah it's pretty stressful <laughs> and so it's <laughs> that everybody who's marginalized experiences in some mm-hmm. way Mm-hmm. Do you notice that when you call these people out a lot? Of, I think someone mentioned earlier gaslighting that they either deny it or they say that you're imagining it. Um, do you all feel like you, you kind of get those reactions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. McGuire, did you want to add something to that? I know you told a, a great story earlier about how you had to educate someone on, you know, the word that they use. Did you have anything else to add with that? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, another dimension, too, of microaggressions when you pass. As, as part of a majority community, right? Um, and I, I've experienced that my whole life where people aren't, I'm kind of racially ambiguous to them. So I get the like, where are you from or what are you? Um, I pass as uh, straight. I pass as uh, able-bodied, um, right? So I, I get to hear these really awful things <laughs> because people think they're confiding in one of their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also like the safety factor, right? Because if they're telling me something that's even sometimes scary, um, do I disclose to them like not only why they're wrong, but that they're like saying it directly to someone <laughs> who would be impacted by it? Um, an example of that is a few years ago, I was in and this guy was, it was when I was still in graduate school, he was very interested in what I was going to and what I was studying. And he was from Jordan. And he said, you know, I'm thinking about taking my family back because I'm very concerned with how gay people are getting so many rights here. This was during um, marriage equality really becoming a problem issue. Mm. 
And he was like, you know, I really want to know from you as an expert, how do I prevent my kids from becoming gay if they grow up in America? Wow. So I was like, okay, I mean, this guy's cab. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm in his space. Like, I can't like jump out, right, or something. And and clearly, he has a lot of like anger and aggression towards for people. So I don't really want to disclose him right now that I am right. Um, right. right. But I also couldn't leave this opportunity of saying, well, there's educating them information, mm-hmm. right? And and basically, that's what I tried to focus on, like where he was like, well, you know, gay people like created AIDS. Like, I don't. He thinks they had a lab or something. <laughs> and so I was like, well, that's just not um, correct. Uh, and, you know, the, the end of the conversation was him talking about how he felt treated so unfairly as a Muslim. And I was like, you know, that's a great example because the way you feel misportrayed, think of how gay people might feel that too. And that's just kind of how the know done, right? But there's, there's so many situations like that where I receive information that that is really hard and then emotionally I, I leave feeling like I have a million pounds on me right um and and it's for that with that passing privilege which can also be even more emotional labor mm-hmm. definitely I think it's great that you did take that opportunity and you didn't just let it pass you by because a lot of people do and I think when you have this information and you consider yourself an quote-unquote expert or you've been through certain things that uh, it is your your obligation to educate people who aren't aren't the wiser. So thank you for that. Um, so just to wrap up here, ladies, I just want you all to leave us with one takeaway for the people who are watching and listening. Why is diversity, inclusion, and belonging more than just a trend? Rebecca. Oh man, I have to go first. <laughs> That's a, it's a really good question, and it's a really really broad topic. I mean, I think you know all of us can you know, spout the business case for diversity and inclusion until we're blue in the face. You know, obviously, you know, diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams. I think that, um, you know, the more diversity of thought even that you have, you have better decision making, you have better outcomes for whatever you're doing. Um, But I also think that the world is changing, the landscape is changing, Um, the, the population of the United States in general is just becoming more and more diverse. And the, the longer people fight it, the longer people keep throwing up these walls, whether literal or metaphorical, um, the worse it's going to be and the more, the more clashes we're going to have and the more conflict we're going to have. So until we can truly embrace not only that people are different and that there is diversity in, in our world, even if it's not in our social circle, um, we're, we're never really going to be able to include them. And if we don't include them, they'll, they'll never really feel like they belong and we'll continue this vicious systemic cycle of discrimination and even just in the government with, you know, the history of redlining, um, of, you know, bad mortgage lending practices are still plaguing us today and nobody is is really addressing that root cause and trying to fix it going forward. And so I think that we really need to break down these barriers and have these really tough, courageous conversations about what it is and why and why it is. Definitely. Thank you for that. Dr. Lizette? You know, um, it, it's, it, it's nice just because it's the humane thing to do is to respect and honor different people, right? But at the end of the day, if you are not affected, uh, as, if you do not identify as a marginalized individual in some capacity, whether ability, sexual orientation, religion, uh, ethnicity, gender, et cetera, then it's going to be it's going to be really difficult for you to take ownership in being part of the change rather than being part of the problem, being part of the solution. And so the way that I suggest this actually encourage change among people who believe that this is not something that's of relevance to them is to think about how does not addressing this affect the work that I'm trying to do. Does that make sense? So for example, um, you know, I worked with someone who said, you know, well, this doesn't affect me. Like, you know, yeah, I'd like to help them, but I have these other things that I need to do. I have all these other pressures, you know, uh, as, you know, as a leader, right? And so they don't understand. And so helping them understand why addressing this is going to help them be able to do this work even better. Because if they 
embrace, uh, you know, their diverse workers and uh, give them the space to be themselves. And they're guess what? They're going to be want to give it their all to help them and the mission of the company get to where they want to be. And so being able to tie it back because it's really just difficult for them to take ownership unless there's something in it for them. And that's mm. just the truth. It may be controversial, but I'm just saying it like it is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Dr. McGuire, you want to wrap up? Yeah, definitely. I am, um, you know, I think my, my biggest suggestion is don't be afraid. You know, these are hard conversations. Um, and I think sometimes people get this, this wrong notion that this is about, you know, telling people everything you do and think and say is wrong and we're, you're all awful people. Right? <laughs> and so they avoid the whole, the whole topic. Um, and so th- that's not what we're doing here at all. And don't, don't fear it embrace it, understand that it will be challenging, but that it benefits everyone. Um, One of the things I say a lot of times is that equity feels like inequality when you've been in a position of power, right? So there's that initial shift and it feels really tough because it's it's like you you suddenly realize all these things have been going on around you um, that you weren't aware of before. And that can be hard, but long-term, whether you're looking at from a business perspective, community perspective, or personal, it truly does benefit everyone involved. So go forth and, uh, and meet those challenges. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you all for joining your, uh, for sharing your expertise and, and joining us on today's uh, masterclass. Can you all tell us where people can find you to learn more, uh, social media, websites, all that stuff? Oh, Rebecca? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that is my, my main platform, although I can be found on Facebook. Awesome. Dr. Lizette? Yeah, I can be found on LinkedIn um, at Lizette Ojeda, O-J-E-D-A. Awesome. Yes, and you can find uh, me on LinkedIn too, Dr. Laura McGuire. You can also find me at my website, drlauramcguire.com and equityandagency.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again. Uh, This webinar was brought to you by Penji. We provide on-demand graphic design to businesses, startups, marketing teams, agencies, and more. So you can check us out at penji.co for more information about that. Also, this webinar will be available on our website as soon as next week and also on our Facebook page as well. So you can watch it later. So another thank you to my guests and to everyone else watching. Have a safe and productive day.